May each of you have a wonderful Christmas Eve. This is especially appropriate tonight that we're here worshiping together before tomorrow we celebrate the coming of Christ. In anticipation of Christmas tomorrow, I want to turn your attention to a story that happened somewhat after the birth of Christ, but it's a reflection on that birth and is usually associated with the coming of Jesus into this world. This is from Matthew chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. It's entitled in my Bible, The Visit of the Wise Men, or we might sometimes know them as the Magi. So you're welcome to follow along on the screen behind me, um, or you can also find this in the Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you. This is the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, a star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, uh, to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the Word of God. Some time ago, I was at a national, national convention for an association that was held in a very large convention center. Very large to the point that there are way more rooms that even this national convention needed. And as I walked into the convention, I saw a placard, as you might have seen if you had been with me, and identified the various rooms and their numbers and the place where I needed to go. So I took a look very quickly because I felt like I had very little time, and I rushed toward the room where I believed that I was supposed to be. And I looked at the number above the room and the name on that placard before I walked in. I pulled open the door expecting that I would be in the back of the room. Rather, I was in the front of the room. And it was not the association meeting I had anticipated. In fact, it was a reception for a wedding. And as I opened the door, everyone turned and looked at me because I had entered into a celebration that was obviously not my own. And instead of feeling joy and reception... I felt instead like I had ruined somebody's great party. For many people, Christmas can feel exactly like that. 
You're supposed to be celebrating this is all good news, welcoming the Son of God, Jesus himself, into this world. And yet it may be that the celebration seems very far off. Because the celebration may be for others, you think, but not for me. I'm obligated to celebrate. I've flung open the door. I should put a smile on my face. But is this celebration actually intended for me? It is for that reason to answer that question that I'm fast-forwarding some past the birth of Jesus to the passage that is meant to reflect the answer to that question, who is Christmas for? You'll notice at the very beginning of this chapter, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the writer, Matthew, intentionally connects the birth of Jesus with this story that happens, or I can put it this way, the coming of the wise men or the magi is meant to give us a commentary, an explanation of one very important thing about Christmas, and that thing is this. Who is Christmas meant for? How do you know if you're supposed to be celebrating? That's a question I want to answer for you tonight by looking at two things from this passage. Now, before I talk about these two things, I want you to be alerted to the fact that there's a third I'm not going to talk about. The third thing I'm not going to talk about is something that I mentioned this morning. And if you weren't here this morning for that service, I'll just have to get briefly tell you what that service was about. And that is, in Revelation 12, God lays out the history of his redemptive work in this world. And he points out how the evil one, the devil, has been seeking to destroy the work of God. But God, in his greatness, brings Jesus into the world. And his power in bringing Jesus into the world is meant to be a reassurance to us that if God can do that, he can also work for us. And this story perfectly illustrates that truth. The evil one through Herod seeks to destroy Jesus, but by the end of this passage, we see that the wise men are headed off on their own way, not alerting Herod to where Jesus was. And if we would have read further, we would have read about Jesus and his parents fleeing to Egypt by the protection of God. Again, that's a very important part of this passage. I'd encourage you to mull it over. I'm just not going to talk about that tonight. Instead, I want to focus on this question, which I believe is really at the heart of this passage, and that is, who is Christmas for, or for whom did Jesus come? Who is meant to receive him, to welcome him into our homes and our hearts, as we sing in the carols? So there are two things I want to say to you about who is, who is able to receive Jesus. The first comes in the first six verses of this chapter, when we read about this incredible story of these wise men traveling to Jerusalem because they saw a star in the east and they felt compelled to come. This is an amazing thing to have happened. And I am guessing you have never heard anything like this happening apart from this. You did not have, to give you an example, when your wife or you gave birth to your firstborn child down at Blodgett's, you did not have strangers from across the country, let alone across town, come to the hospital to congratulate you on the birth of this child. That didn't happen. There's something truly remarkable in the case of Jesus, and let me explain that to you. And let's start with just what we do not know about these magi or wise men. 
Maybe you think, for example, there were three wise men that came that very well may be true. It may not be true. We don't know. We guess based on the gifts that they brought. We do not know precisely where they came from. The east is what is, what is said here, most likely Persia, but we have no idea where in Persia or even if that was exactly the case. That's a mystery. We do not know what star God used to draw them to Israel. You might find this curious. When I was in seminary, I was assigned in my first year to write a paper to answer the question, what was the date of Jesus' birth? And you won't be surprised to learn that there's been all kinds of speculation based on this story. What sort of star appeared at this point? Was it a meteor? What was it that flew through the sky and led the magi or wise men to Jerusalem? All kinds of speculation. Here's the simple answer to the question. I absolutely have no idea and no one knows. It turns out that paper assignment was really about figuring out how to write a paper and not about when Jesus, the precise date in which Jesus was born. It's impossible to know. We're not trying to guess from this passage how many wise men came, where exactly they came from, or this question, exactly the date of their arrival. That's not at the point of this story. Instead, here's what we do know. And these details seem to be given to us intentionally. We do know that these men were not Jewish, and likely had very little or no knowledge of the Old Testament faith. There is some speculation that they may have contact, come in contact with Jews during the Persian captivity. But beside that similarity in place, we have nothing in this story that would tell us that the place or that ancient history led to these men coming. Rather, instead, the story emphasizes that these men traveled a long distance because they believed they were instructed by the divine to do so. They were compelled, or I can put it this way, they were supernaturally called to come. We also know from this story that they believed this star that appeared in the east indicated a king had been born. That's why they went to Jerusalem. They went to the place where Herod was, and they asked this question, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? They may not have known how significant the king's birth was, but they were again divinely called to leave their lives back in Persia or the east behind and to come to Jerusalem to worship this king. And finally, although it's not explicitly stated, it is clear that God is the one who's drawing them to come. He's the one who is calling them to appear in Jerusalem. Some of the internal sense that they have that drew them to Jerusalem and asked this question, where is the king of the Jews? Where has he been born? We have come to worship him. Some of that has come simply from the internal sense that God had given them to leave everything behind to pack up the most precious gifts that they possessed and to come and see the king of the Jews. And when they arrive in Jerusalem and they ask this question, they were given the passage that we read just a short time ago from Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. And you find a quotation from that passage here in verse 6. And if you're familiar with this story in Matthew 2 or the story of Jesus' incarnation in another place, you won't be surprised by this quotation. This is a frequently used quotation at this time of year. It foretells 
that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, the place of bread. But I want you to think a moment, if you know, at least if you can remember, what we read a short time ago ago, in that quote from Micah. You may have gotten a sense from Micah chapter 5 that Micah the prophet was not writing during a happy occasion. The book Micah was written to predict the coming of the Assyrian army to take the Israelites captive. Talk about bad news. It's the worst news you've ever heard. It's worse than I'm sorry. You have cancer. It's terminal. There's very little we can do for you. That's personally devastating. It's devastating to your family. It's really horrible news. I'm not minimizing it. But that's different than the news that God is going to bring an entire nation into captivity. That raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Will God keep us safe? Does he care for us? Will he provide for us? Will he take us back out of captivity? How bad will it be? What does this mean about who we are before the divine? And in the middle of chapter 5, Micah gives them the hope that we read. In the middle of this prediction of oppression by the Assyrians, God, it says, will bring them a deliverer, a ruler to Israel. God would not abandon them. That's what Micah says. He would deliver them. It says in verses 4 and 5 that we read earlier, and he shall stand and shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. Imagine how strange that would have heard, would have sounded to them, how they would have heard it. And they shall dwell secure, for now he will be great to the ends of of the earth, Micah says. I am sure all these Israelites who were listening in Micah's day would have focused on the first part of what Micah said. There is coming a king and he will deliver us. He will stand in the middle of his people and protect them. The Assyrians will not be able to harm us. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Persians, none of them will be able to harm us because the coming Messiah will stand in the middle of his people and protect them. They would have thought to themselves, listen, here comes someone greater than David himself, greater than any Old Testament king. That's what God is promising here in Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. But tonight I want you to be delighted by the rest of what Micah says. It is the second part of those verses that matter from Matthew chapter 2. When Micah says, and he shall be great to the ends of the earth, he is saying to the Israelites and to us, not only is the greatness of Jesus Christ meant to be honored and respected among the Old Testament people within the church as we know it today, but it is the intention of God that Jesus Christ will be great, the Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth. That all will hear that there is no one beside the Messiah given to us by God. And it's that second part of these verses that I want you to hear tonight. And I want you to mull over as we consider that question, for whom is Christmas intended? 
All the way back in Genesis, you might know that there were promises given to Abraham, the one who was called the father of the faithful. God said to Abraham, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you see places in the Old Testament where that happens. Think of Ruth, for example. She was a Moabitess, brought into the Israelite nation, and she came to know the promises of the coming Messiah. But the beauty of what happens here in Matthew chapter 2 is it's not a trickle. In fact, what we find here in Matthew chapter 2 is the beginning of God opening the floodgates of those who would come to hear and to know Jesus Christ. God is supernaturally speaking, not just to those magi, to the wise men, calling them to travel many, many miles to leave behind their homes. In a sense, to do what Abraham did back in Genesis, God called him, it says, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he left. Now God calls these wise men out of Persia, and they leave, and they travel many, many miles because they are divinely called. And what I wanted you to hear tonight is a partial answer to that question, who does God call to worship His Son? For whom is Christmas intended? The easy answer is it's for people who have been Christians and they've been that way a long time. That's, that's who is supposed to celebrate Christmas. They already have entered that room. The celebration going on there doesn't seem odd to them. It's just sort of the routine You've celebrated Christmas for a very long time. We're very thankful for that. Isn't it wonderful? We have the whole routine established. But the beauty of Matthew chapter 2 is that the writer is emphasizing to us that's not the primary qualification for celebrating the arrival of Jesus Christ. It is not whether it is part of your routine. It is whether you have been called by God to worship Jesus. It's not a matter simply of history. It's not the matter of the stars, first of all. It's not a matter of our routine. It's a matter of the supernatural calling of God to everyone who will hear. I want you to think about how that worked out in the lifetime of Jesus, which you know. In Jesus and his work in the Gospels, we see the calling of the nations to him. Think as one minor example of Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. His disciples would have never imagined engaging this woman. But Jesus speaks to her. He engages her. He probes her heart. This woman is supernaturally called by God to this Messiah. In the same way that these wise men were called many, many miles to travel in order to come to the Messiah, this woman maybe traveled only blocks from her home to the well, but there she encountered the Messiah. There she saw the one that God had called her to know. And if you really want to understand the unfolding of New Testament history, not just from the time up to the arrival of Jesus, But to understand the time from Jesus' arrival, his first coming until now, you have to understand the powerful nature of God's call 
that you would worship him. Jesus tells his disciples as he ascends to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's what happens. We read of Paul's missionary journeys, the letters of Paul to churches in these places across the known world. And Paul himself makes it to Rome before he dies with the gospel. And further, after Paul, in the close of the New Testament, we see this impetus in the church of Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel across the world so that even though we are far from the nation of Israel, we are far from any place the Apostle Paul could ever have imagined in his lifetime, we are here tonight celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has divinely called. That's why. This is his son, and tonight he is welcoming you here and saying not only celebrate Christmas, whatever that entails, but know who Jesus is. Come, come and worship him. The question I give to you, at least the first question I want to ask you tonight is a very simple one, and that is do you hear him calling you? I don't mean that you're laying in bed at night in the same way that if you have small children, you will hear them shout sometimes, frankly, my children are too old for this, and I don't miss it. But you know those sounds kids make when they have a bad dream? Mom, Dad, come. That's not the kind of call I'm talking about. I'm talking about the movement of God by His Spirit in you with the same force and the same power that led these wise men to come to Jesus. He can, and He does call you too. It's the same God by the same Spirit bringing you to the same Jesus that you would leave, in some sense, everything you have behind to come to Him. Is He calling you? The second thing I want to note about this question who is called? Who is called? Or, to use the language that I used at the beginning of tonight's sermon, for whom is Christmas? Part of the answer to that question is for those God calls. Here's a second part to that question, and we find that in verses 7 through 12. After the wise men receive the instruction from those in Jerusalem, it says they followed the star to the place where Jesus was. And when they came to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And this is how they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. If part of the answer to the question is, for whom is Christmas? For whom does a call of Christmas come? Who is to hear it? If the first part of the answer is, for those in whom God is calling, he's working, he's beckoning, the second part of the answer is, those whom God calls to worship it's not just that, just that God calls us, but he calls us to worship. He is calling you not only to hear this news, but to worship Jesus. To put it simply, to offer yourself to him, the most precious things you possess. It's not a detached sort of thing where you hear this news and you say, oh, I understand who Jesus is now. That's interesting, just like I know who Caesar was or Herod was. Or I understand when Ronald Reagan was president. Now I have that information. This is not like that at all. This is more like when I saw my wife walking across the college campus 
And I was there checking in bikes. It was my job to record every bike, put them in a little tabulation so if they got lost, we could find them back. And I saw my wife walking across that campus. I did not want to just know her name. I wanted my life to be entwined with hers. And what these magi, these wise men are offering to Jesus is more than simply, we understand who you are. They're offering themselves to Jesus in worship. They're giving him the greatest things they possess. If I could just put it this way, they're willing to give him their lives. Why do I say that so forcefully? Not only it says they have come to worship him, but the gifts they offer represent that truth. And I'll just note them quickly. First, they give him gold. That was universally recognized then and now as the most precious metal. It was the metal of the kings at times. It still is the metal that you offer when you really mean to impress someone with an engagement ring or something of the sort. You want a high quality gold. It bears your heart in the importance of the moment. And that's why kings accumulated a lot of gold. Think of Solomon in the Old Testament. And it may be true even in the case of these magi, these wise men bringing this gold to Jesus. They're bringing it to Jesus because there was nothing more expensive or greater that they could offer to him. They mean to, mean to give him the greatest they possessed, not the leftovers. Not whatever they could afford after they had bought their own things. Know that they offered gold is more than financial recognition. It is the recognition of the heart. They're saying, Jesus, you are king. The second thing they offered to Jesus is incense or frankincense, as it's noted in our text. They may have wondered why they were bringing incense We know in the Old Testament that incense was used in the worship of God. But you should know that in the Old Testament, spice was never used in any sacrifice where there was a sin offering. Only meal offerings included incense, which were not for sin. They were only meant to demonstrate fellowship with God. And I have no illusion that these wise men understood what they were offering to Jesus When they brought incense, again, it is simply that it was an expensive item. It was the best they could bring. It was known across the world as a precious item. But when these wise men bring to Jesus incense, they're actually doing more than they intend. And they're recognizing what the Old Testament indicated about the coming Messiah, and that is he was the perfect one. The one who was not tainted by sin at all. And in a sense, they're offering to him and demonstrating to us something beyond what they could have imagined. The third thing they offer to Jesus is myrrh. Now, this one especially is confusing because it was the gift of death. Later on, when Jesus died, Nicodemus brings a hundred pounds of myrrh in order to treat the body of Jesus. It was an embalming component. It was meant to be a fragrant portion of that embalming or that care for the body when someone was dead 
He was not only used by the Israelites, he was used by the Romans, he was used by the Greeks, it was used by the Egyptians. Many cultures use myrrh. It was considered incredibly precious. Again, they're offering to Jesus what they know, the very best that they know. But in their gift, they are indicating something that they may not even realize. And that is in, the, in his birth, they're offering to Jesus a recognition of his death. That Jesus came not only to live, he also came to die. And these three gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, were all divinely given to us in this passage, brought by these wise men to Jesus. So that tonight when we ask the question, who is Christmas intended for? Who is the birth of Jesus intended for? The answer we can give is a very simple one. First is intended for those that God is calling for those that God brings to Jesus. And as the Lord works in you, as the Spirit calls you to Jesus, don't hesitate. These wise men didn't hesitate. They came to Jesus. But Christmas is also intended for those who not only come to Jesus, but they offer to Jesus their worship, what is most precious to them. In fact, they offer to Jesus their lives. Tomorrow you're going to have the joy. If your house is like ours, you're going to get up at a certain point. We're going to have pancakes. That's what we do on Christmas morning, evidently. A lot of pancakes with loads of syrup. And after everyone is laden down by the glucose and everybody's feeling like they're ready, we'll open gifts. And it's not just the gifts, is it? It is the expression of love that we have for each other. Even siblings who may not get along may still give each other a gift at Christmas, and we all are thankful for that truth. As wonderful as that gift-giving is, I want you to see in this passage something much, much deeper. It is not wise men simply bringing gifts to Jesus because they want to offer something to him, like you want to give something nice to your parents. This is God fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament to bring the nations to know Jesus. And by his divine call, these men came. And they came willingly just as we come by the call of his Spirit today. And these men also, by the work of the Spirit, give themselves to Jesus in worship. And tonight on this Christmas Eve, before you go home You enjoy a good meal, a good night of sleep, and all that Christmas Day is. Let me encourage you to know this Jesus as well, and to offer yourself to him as he calls you to worship him. May you have a wonderful Christmas Eve and a day filled with the joy of Jesus Christ tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, the truth of your word is a truth that we will find nowhere else. Many of us look for truth. We look this way and that. We're longing for something that brings a solid place to stand. And in Jesus Christ, we find not only the claims 
that Jesus made, but we find a life. We find a being who was actually born in history, for whom people came and worshipped him. The claims of the gospel are not merely stories to be heard and appreciated. The claims of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God who calls us by his Spirit to worship him. Father, thank you for giving us that call, not only in Matthew chapter 2, but also bringing it here tonight. May we hear and to offer ourselves as these men did, whether we have traveled many miles or just a few, may we give ourselves in worship to this King as well. We pray in his name. Amen.